Good morning. And good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for May 21st, 2014. And uh, summer and spring is coming. I want to um, introduce, uh, announce and clarify an email. A couple emails have been circulating. People may have seen an invitation or saved the date for an Imagine Chad Summit. And just to give some clarity as best we can, although there'll be more information coming along, we're planning over the summer to um, uh, imagine Chad and re-engage the entire community or anybody who feels that they have a, have a interest, a passion, a love of Chad to think with us, dream with us, uh, discover with us what is the best inherently in Chad, what its positive core is, and how that can be the springboard for ongoing and continued success. So that will have summits at the beginning and the end of the summer, May, and, uh, June, and September. There'll be processes during the summer. Any and all consider themselves interested or wanting to participate are, are please uh, encouraged and welcome to join us. Uh, a little confusion on the, the summits themselves because they utilize a process called appreciative inquiry. Uh, we really are going to need that folks who can and want to participate in those have to commit to the full day. Really, the process builds upon itself and really is generative and energizing because it, the people who are in the room are in the room together for the entire day. If you can't make the summit, it's not that you won't be able to participate, uh, contribute your voice, and be heard over the summer or at the second summit. So I know it's a little bit of a please come but don't come uh, message, but certainly you'll enjoy it. It's fun. It's energizing. It's exciting. It's a time commitment. We don't expect it in the summer. We can, everyone can necessarily make it. We've got folks joining us in the way. So that's June 14th. Further information will be coming. It had been June 13th, 14th, but based on some early feedback, it'll simply be a, a full solid day on June 14th, Saturday, the first summit, activities through the summer, and then the second summit uh, in September, um, uh, perhaps a, a two-day two summit for that. So uh, please keep enthused, interested, and keep an eye out on your email boxes and listen in your section meetings for that. Um, so. We will be uh, excitedly doing that. In the meantime, today is not only Grand Rounds, but it continues to be our CHAD Gastroenterology Mini, Mini Fellowship Series. Um, and so we've had talks already presented this spring. Dr. Hoffley rejoins us. I, I think I may have missed your, um, is this the first of the talks you've given? Okay, so this is Dr. So Dr. Mark Hoffley spoke, and I think Dr. Edwards also spoke. I missed one of them in this series, and we will continue to have at least one more talk in June, if not July, on the Gastroenterology Mini Fellowship Series. As a reminder, we're trying to bring mostly our local expertise and our specialty divisions to catch all of us up on the latest and greatest developments in the most common and important conditions in their fields. So um, we're pleased to welcome Pam this morning. She is a native of Scotland, which uh, I, I forget. She's told me before, but I don't catch it in her accent. I really catch that Toronto accent where she grew up for grade school, subsequently matriculated at Queen's University at Kingston, Ontario for her uh, bachelor's and MD degree, trained uh, uh, at Kingston as well as at the University uh, of Toronto or the Hospital for Sick Kids in Toronto for both pediatrics as well as gastroenterology fellowship, completing training at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and, uh, and, and practicing in New Jersey for quite some time before joining us in New Hampshire in 2003. 2001, sorry. 
2003. So you will never forget that day. So Pam has been here and, and leads our regional programs, uh, Associate uh, Director of CHAD for the regional programs as Section Chief for Pediatric Gastroenterology. She's going to talk about a very important hot topic that I have heard her speak on at the Mount Washington Conference on food reactions. I was at the I was at the uh, Hanover Rotary on Wednesday expecting to answer um, questions about, you know, the usual questions about Chad and it's, it's uh, the things we've been talking about for the past eight months. And what they wanted to talk about was uh, uh, food allergies and reactions, which I was quite ignorant of. So today I'm looking forward to get educated. You didn't speak quite that I did, but I didn't want to speak out So, well, thank, thanks for uh, coming this morning. Um, this works best if people stick up their hands and interrupt me and hate just lecturing to the crowd. It's better if it's a little bit interactive. Um, can everyone hear me all right? We're good? They're listening, so I should talk through sure, here. Yeah, unless you want to put on the... Uh -huh. Do you want me to put on this? How's that? Okay. So I wanted to talk about adverse food reactions today. Um, this is an important topic, and I'm sure um, any of you who um, practice general pediatrics or just about in any division have um, kids that show up and their parents are convinced that they are allergic to some sort of food in their diet that is causing whichever symptom it is, whether it be urinating too often for the nephrologists or having a, a bad behavior to the developmentalists or what, whatever you choose, it, it must be due to something in their diet. Um, so we want to talk a little bit about that today. Um, so when we talk about adverse food reactions, it's important to separate these out into true immunologic food allergies, which can be IgE-mediated or non-IgE-mediated or mixed and non-immunologic food intolerances. And it's important to separate those two things out and use different words to describe them. Um, and that's what I'm going to focus a lot on today. Because everybody comes and says they're allergic to something. So when I tell um, a parent, like I had one this week, their child was allergic to milk, and mom goes, oh, I am too. I'm lactose. I have lactose allergy. And that's lactose intolerance, and it's really important that we separate the two um, out. So allergy versus intolerance. If in a survey, about one-third of parents will report adverse food reactions in their young children, and they call these allergies. Um, and although the rates of verifiable food allergy are actually much lower than one-third. So food sensitization and or allergy is present present about 5 or 10% of young children with a peak prevalence at about one year of age, dropping down pretty rapidly by age five to only one or 2%. So this one third of parents who report food reactions or food allergy when their children are put into preschool and into kindergarten, these are not food allergies, they're food intolerances. It's important for us to separate those out. So food allergy is characterized by immunologic responses to specific food proteins. And the guidelines for the diagnosis and management of food allergy are defined um, as an adverse health effect arising from specific immune response that occurs reproducibly on exposure to a given food, and that's important. 
The clinical um, manifestations of the food allergy are dependent on whether it's IgE-mediated, which can be very rapid onset, and non-IgE-mediated, which can take hours or days. The prevalence, as I said, is greatest in the first few years of life, and the majority of childhood food allergies are lost over time. Um, all the process of resolution varies a great deal amongst different patients, and it's very hard to tell you know, where your patient's going to fall there. Um, children with atopic disease, those kids who come with tons of eczema, um, are much more likely to have food allergies. And if actually, about 35% of children with atopic dermatitis do have true food allergy, but not all of them. Um, so the gastrointestinal tract has a barrier system to protect the body from ingested antigens. And this includes immunologic and physiologic barriers, so the acidity of our stomach. So why does Dr. Edwards like to give you a speech about why we shouldn't be using acid blockers in young children? Number one, because the stomach acidity is one of those barriers that helps to bring, break down food antigens so that they're not presented intact um, to the bowel, setting you up for food allergies. So, while yes, some kids do need to be on an acid blocker, um, the, the, the amount of H2s and PPIs that we're using in young children can be an issue. Um, the mucin coat, gastrointestinal enzymes, and immunoglobulins. Um, and as these mature, the incidence of food allergy declines. The other thing that, that I haven't got up here that we think about, um, Juliet Madan's doing a lot of work that all of you have heard about um, with regards to the, to the microbiome. And the microbiome and how it plays into all of these things, the mucin coat, our gastrointestinal enzymes, the immunoglobulins, is also probably a really big part of why we're seeing um, food allergy as much as we are. Um, so, and again, as the microbiome improves, as, as all of these um, mature, the incidence of food allergy drops. So some food allergies are outgrown, usually the eggs, milk, and soy, very commonly outgrown. The ones that you don't outgrow are the peanuts, the tree nuts, the fish, and the shellfish. And so you can be quite reassuring to most parents of kids who are allergic to the eggs, milk, and soy that most of them will grow out of it. We need to take more seriously the ones on the right, the, the nuts and the fish and the shellfish. Um, you usually don't outgrow them and sometimes can become much more um, uh, virulent. So 90% of food allergies are caused by a limited number of foods. Um, Scott Shearer and, um, at the Jaffe Food Institute in New, uh, in New York, Mount Sinai, which is really sort of the place for food allergy, um, says anyone who shows up with a list this long of food allergies doesn't have food allergies because in general, you're allergic to one or two specific things. You're not allergic to 50 foods. And most allergies are caused by a very limited number of very antigenic foods. Um, and in children, those are the ones on the left. And again, in adults, the peanuts, tree nuts, fish, shellfish, the ones that you don't grow out of. But you're generally not allergic to a laundry list of 50 foods that has to keep you on a diet that only consists of three things. So the most common food allergy that we see um, in, in children is cow's milk protein allergy. Um, it affects about 2 to 3% of children during the first two years of life. It seems to affect more in my practice, but that's a referral bias. Um, Non-IgE-mediated cosmic protein allergy um, is transient childhood condition and is almost always outgrown. And these actually, some of these kids look sicker than the other kids. These are the kids that 
um, and we'll talk about later the, the F pies, um, this sort of thing where the kids throw up, um, have uh, a lot of diarrhea, a lot of bleeding, it really can look quite ill, but it's non-IgE mediated, it's transient, and it's almost always outgrown. And so actually those kids who have blood in their stool, I say to their mom, this is actually good. It's non-IgE mediated and way more likely to grow out of it um, than children who have some of the eczema um, asthma sort of reactions, which are IgE-mediated, because they're causing a systemic response, they're less likely to grow out of it. Um, IgE-mediated um, cow's milk protein may persist through adolescence and beyond. Um, children with IgE-mediated CMA uh, cow's milk protein allergy, um, higher IgE levels tend to have more persistent disease. Um, children with allergic rhinitis or asthma, again, more likely to be IgE-mediated and have um, cow's milk protein allergy that persists. Um, egg allergy is the other common one that we see, about 1 to 2% of the population. And again, the majority of cases resolve within childhood or adolescence. The overall prevalence in the U.S. is about 0.2%, and that's based on serologic testing. So although we can start out at 1% to 2%, you can see that it really drops down. Um, most of these reactions are IgE-mediated. This isn't the, uh, as commonly causing the kind of FPIs um, syndrome. And with CMA, the rate at which the IgE levels drop um, can, be assessed, can be used to assess the likelihood that they're going to grow out of it. We'll talk a little bit about RAS testing later when to do it. So IgE-mediated food allergy reactions, those arise when the food allergens penetrate the gastrointestinal barrier, initiating an immediate hypersensitivity um, chain of events, can cause urticaria, angioedema. This can cause the life-threatening events um, without any cutaneous response. And the signs and symptoms happen in a few minutes to a couple of hours, not I drank milk on Saturday, and Wednesday I felt sick. Um, that's not IgE-mediated. That's not going to cause anaphylaxis. Um, the most severe cases involve cardiovascular system or respiratory systems and do cause um, food-induced anaphylaxis. So this is where I want to stop for a little bit. So food is the leading cause of anaphylaxis in children. When I started out the talk, I said one-third of people think that their kids have food allergies. And if you go to any preschool or ask a kindergarten teacher how many notes she has that the children are allergic to food, it's probably a third of the class, is showing up with notes from their physicians that says, no milk for this child, no this for this child, or no 15 foods for this child because he's allergic to them. And that's a problem because food is the leading cause of anaphylaxis in children, and that's the real deal. Most deaths from anaphylaxis in children, and when we look um, over about the last 10 years, almost all those deaths have been in, sc in schools or in situations where people didn't pay attention to the symptoms or didn't have an EpiPen ready for the kid. And that's because what we've done is desensitize teachers and desensitize caregivers by having one-third of kids labeled as allergic to milk, they start to ignore the kid that really is. So the child who's really allergic to milk, really allergic to peanuts, is going to have the anaphylactic reaction. 
the teacher's seen 17 kids this year who have a note for milk who accidentally ate something and got a tummy ache or didn't have anything wrong with them or their mom said they had a tummy ache three days later or acted out. So they've sort of like desensitized to this. And so the child who really is allergic, who really needs that EpiPen, they don't pay attention to them as we should. So we really need to educate families and educate um, uh, teachers that we're doing this the right way. And we identify those kids that really are allergic, that they have an EpiPen, that it's taken seriously. And we explain to other parents that their children don't have IgE-mediated food allergy, and, or they have a food intolerance, and start to use that word. And you may be food intolerant. That's OK. You, if I drink milk, I'm allergic. I don't have an allergy to lactose. I'm lactose intolerant. I get a stomachache. I don't feel good. Um, that's okay to put that in, but it's not an allergy, it's an intolerance, and we have to be careful about that. So the other one that we talk a little bit about is called the oral allergy syndrome. And every time I give this talk, there's about 10 people in the audience who realize they have this. Um, <laughs> these symptoms are associated with the ingestion of fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, they generally have a very rapid onset and, and rapid resolution. And you get uh, itching of your lips, palate, tongue, and throat. I didn't realize I had this um, until I started looking into this a little bit more. And it's, I, I get this with pineapple. I get it with radishes. Um, I remember saying to my husband, he eats radishes all the time. I said, how can you eat those at lunch? They, they, they're so strong, they burn my mouth every time I eat them. They're, he goes, radishes don't burn your mouth. Radishes are like a benign thing. I went, yeah, they burn, they're terrible. <laughs> um, and then I start reading this and go, oh, well maybe this is what's going on. Pineapple does this to me too and does this to my kids. Um, so I don't know how many of you there's certain fruits and vegetables that you avoid or don't like um, that you find bother your mouth. Um, and this is this oral allergy syndrome. Um, it's confined to your mouth. And when it happens to me with radishes and pineapples and things like that, I don't worry that my airway's going to close or anything else exciting is going to happen. Um, very, very few of these people actually have a systemic response. It's very rare. And if it's happened repeatedly, it can be very reassuring to people that this doesn't mean they're going to go on to full-blown IgE-mediated um, responses to these foods. Um, it's just an oral allergy syndrome. It doesn't, doesn't go away, though. It does tend to get a little worse over time. Does anybody have oral allergy syndrome? <laughs> what? My kids do. Your kids do. So sometimes when kids tell you they don't like a food, um, watch with the fruits and vegetables. This actually may be what's going on. Um, so symptoms of throat closing are potentially systemic and life-threatening and shouldn't be confused with oral allergy syndrome, which is a very self-limiting condition. So it's important to differentiate between the two. Um, oral allergy syndrome is frequently seen in patients with seasonal allergic rhinitis. It's a cross-reactivity between some pollens and foods. So ragweed pollen does the melons and bananas. The birch pollen does um, apples, celery, apple, key. I have trouble with kiwi and celery. Celery burns my mouth, too, so, and all these foods. Um, and I'm allergic to birch pollen, so that's the, the corollary there. A mugwort pollen, which I don't even know what that is, um, is banana, kiwi, um, avocado, and, and chestnut. So move on to non-IgE-mediated food sensitivity. So this is an allergy 
but it's not the immediate life-threatening type. So the important one to, to identify in kids is whether or not they have immediate IgE-mediated um, uh, food allergy. Those are the ones that need the note for school with the EpiPen and the red flag and everybody trained and they have to know about it. And if the school didn't know about all these other ones, it would be just fine because I need them to really know about those IgE-mediated ones that are life-threatening. This is non-IgE-mediated food hypersensitivity. So this is the FPIs. Um, this is the exciting kid in the ER. It ha happens usually in infants between one week and three months of age. Major symptoms are protracted vomiting and or diarrhea, and it's usually from cow's milk or uh, soy protein. They're the most common. Rice actually is another one that sets this off, and you'll see uh, kids present at four months of age when they first get rice cereal. Um, symptoms usually resolve after about 72 hours of allergen avoidance, and most kids do grow out of this. Um, you can get proctocolitis as well. Again, first few months of life, um, grosser occult bleeding. Um, cow's milk and soy protein are usually implicated. One of the things to watch with this one um, is that it may coexist with C. diff infection. Um, the, when the Jaffe Food Institute looked at this, they found a 50% incidence of C. diff colonization in these kids. So as you know, 70% of babies leave the nursery colonized with C. diff. Um, most people are able to clear that um, from their gut, and we don't have um, receptors to C. diff toxin until we're about eight weeks old. So it's absolutely fine to have C. diff around in your system because you don't have receptors to the toxin. At about eight weeks of age, if you have a healthy microbiome, you haven't been on antibiotics, your mom didn't get them for group B strep, you've cleared out um, the, the C. diff, and there, there should be no issue when you develop, when you, um, develop receptors to C. diff. What we found in kids who have um, food-induced proctocolitis from, from the milk allergy is the whole microbiome is upset. Um, the, the gut barrier is broken down because of the proctocolitis, and they may not clear the C. diff um, and are more likely to get a, a sort of coexisting enterocolitis. So you identify that you've got blood in the stool, the child's not well, you take them off milk, you take them off soy, mom's eating absolutely nothing because the child's breastfed and you put them on Neocate, they still don't get better because you have this going on as well. On the corollary, sometimes the first thing people do, they don't look at the allergy, they look at the C. diff, they find C. diff, they treat it, and the child doesn't get better. They didn't get better because they have um, some milk-induced uh, proctocolitis. And this may be a little bit of a chicken and egg thing, and this is one of the things they're trying to sort out. Is it because I had persistent C. diff and developed receptors to the toxin at eight weeks of age, got a little bit of colitis that now I broke down the neurologic barrier and became allergic to the food, or is it because I got the food and I broke down the barrier that I didn't clear the C. diff? But it's very clear that the two coexist and you have to look for both of them if it doesn't make sense to you that things aren't clearing up. Because really, blood in the stool of a three-month-old is one of two things. It's you're allergic to something or you've got a, an infection. But the key thing to remember is it's not or, it can be both. Um, Food-induced enteropathy, um, it's usually uh, presents in the first months of life and is more of a malabsorption syndrome. So it's not causing a full-blown, more immediate reaction with a lot of swelling or bleeding. 
um, more um, just causing subtle um, damage to the small bowel, much like in celiac disease. And again, cow's milk sensitivity is the most frequent cause. Protracted greasy diarrhea, vomiting, failure to thrive. Um, and these intestinal lesions may take six to 18 months of allergy avoidance to clear up. Much like in celiac disease, when we uh, remove gluten from the diet, it can take six to 12 months to really heal. Um, eosinophilic gastroenteritis. Um, this is intolerance to multiple foods, IgE or non-IgE-mediated, with eosinophils infiltrating the esophagus, the stomach, or intestinal walls. This is rare. So this child who does need to be a Neocate or Neocate Junior and off of multiple foods um, is very, very rare. They're sick. It's not hard to figure out. If we scope them, the biopsies aren't very difficult to read. There's hundreds of eosinophils everywhere. Um, these kids get nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea, you name it, they get it. Um, when we take the foods out, um, the symptoms resolve within three to six weeks um, of allergen elimination. So this is the only kid who gets to have a really long list of foods. What we are finding now with this, although I put that up in the slide about the really long list of foods, is that there's probably only one or two foods that actually make this persist. So while at the beginning, the kids are taken off of absolutely everything, and unless you take them off of everything, they don't get better, you can reintroduce foods once the gut's healed, and it turns out there may only be one or two that they're actually allergic to. So again, it still goes back to you're probably allergic to one or two things, but once you sort of really damage the gut barrier, you've got eosinophils everywhere, you react to everything that's thrown at you. So you have to take it all out and then slowly reintroduce, and you usually get down to one or two foods, usually the same ones, milk, soy, rice, corn, the, the same offenders. Um, celiac disease. So this one is common. Um, Gluten-sensitive celiac disease produces an extensive enteropathy leading to malabsorption. Um, I'd be surprised if there's anyone here who doesn't got someone in their practice who has celiac disease. Um, the sensitivity is to gliadin, the alkali-soluble soluble portion of gluten, which is found in wheat, um, oat, rye, and barley. And treatment of this one does require lifelong elimination of gluten. So this is the one that persists. Um, and this is the one that we, um, we can't do trials to see if you, you tolerate it or any of those things. This one persists and sticks with you for life. Um, Food intolerance accounts for the majority of adverse food reactions. So all of those things we talked about before are two to three percent, small numbers of kids. It's really pretty obvious. They're pretty sick. Um, and most of them grow out of it, except for some of the, uh, some of the food groups where, which are uncommon, and something like celiac disease. This is what most kids have. They have. Um, food intolerance. It's not immunologically mediated. Um, it includes um, abnormal metabolic responses like lactase deficiency and unusual susceptibility to pharmacologic substances in certain foods. Some people are sensitive to caffeine. Some people are sensitive to tyramine. But they're not allergic to those foods. Um, I had a patient on Monday, came in and was a teenager. And her mother is convinced that she has food allergies um, when they were um, away on vacation. She had a large thing of ice cream plus some chicken nuggets and some onion rings, and she got sick. 
So she must be allergic to something she ate. Um, you know, or every time I go out to said fast food restaurant, I get sick, what's in the food? It's like, it's just the food. Um, so food intolerance, this is where we get caught. And this is where a parent comes with a very good story about what goes on and wants the note because every child, time my child um, eats ice cream, he gets sick. You know, if it's lactose intolerance, it's lactose intolerance, and we can deal with that. But please don't label it a food allergy because you're really doing a disservice to those kids who really have an allergy. The one where I really get caught um, is with the behavioral responses. There's a lot of people who, whose kids do have, may in fact have behavioral responses to certain foods where if they get too much sugar or too much food dye or they, if you eat at McDonald's, um, there's enough foods too that'll give you a stomachache that you'll have behavioral responses and you won't be able to concentrate in class. Um, please don't call those allergies and that's where we're getting caught um, is with those kids getting labeled as being allergic to those foods that they're intolerant of. Um, I'm intolerant of certain foods, if, and certainly if I eat at McDonald's, I don't feel good. But I'm not allergic to it, um, and we have to we have to draw that line. So diagnosing food allergy, um, the patient history is really paramount in the selection of foods for testing. So getting a careful history, uh, because remember back at the beginning, these are reproducible; they happen the same way each time, and it happens, you know, in a in a set period of time. Skin testing can be quite useful once you're two. Before that age, it can be very, very variable whether or not this works. You can have children who are violently allergic to milk, um, have the full F pies and would land in the ER, who will have negative skin testing. Um, and you can have kids who can drink all the milk they want and have a, a skin test come up positive because it's irritating them. So skin testing is useful, but usually um, later. Um, the in vitro uh, ELISA tests are recommended for patients who have um, significant eczema or dermatographism, severe skin disease, um, and perhaps sensitivities to, marked sensitivities to certain foods where if you put it on their skin, you'd really get such a huge reaction that um, your parent wouldn't like, the parent wouldn't like you anymore. Um, if you can't get off antihistamines, then you could do RAS testing as well. Again, these really aren't that useful till kids are about two. And then most kids have grown out of these problems. So the kids who are persisting um, aren't growing out of this. There's more likely it's IgE mediated. You can do these tests. They're quite reliable by the time the kids are two and can give you some sort of marker as to whether or not they're going to grow out of it or not. If you think you have a milk allergy and you get all negative testing, then there's a good chance this child's going to, um, to grow out of this. If you get a very high IgE level, you can monitor it over time. And if it starts to go down, then try to reintroduce the food and challenge them. Um, so when we talk about patient history, look at the types of symptoms. If it's just the mouth, you're talking about oral allergy. Um, look at, as I said, with bleeding or things like that, it's more likely non-IgE mediated. They're more likely to grow out of it. Relationship between the symptom onset and ingestion. Again, I ate it on Saturday. I got sick on Thursday. Um, is unlikely to be an allergy. Um, how long it's been since they last reacted. The quantity of food they took. Um, when the symptoms occurred. So if you get vomiting and diarrhea because you ate an entire tub of ice cream, you're probably not allergic to ice cream. You just ate too much. Um, but if you had one lick of it and your throat closed, 
that's a whole different story. Um, activities at the time of and are prior to symptoms. There is an, an unusual um, food uh, reaction where people who are exercising can be um, sensitized to foods, and it's only when they're exercising that we don't clearly understand. So, um, and that's the real deal as well. So ask, you know, what were you doing when this happened? Skin testing. Um, a negative test strongly indicates against that food being responsible, I said after age two. A positive test usually requires some correlation with a clear positive history. So, you know, running a battery of tests on some child's back for food allergies, you're, you're going to get something to come up. It should correlate with a history of that food causing a problem. Um, rather than just running the battery and saying, oh, take these five foods out of your diet. That might be what's upsetting your stomach. Um, and, and a food challenge can be useful too. A correct result um, sometimes relies on the uh, use of fresh foods to do the skin testing. Um, and you'll see up in the, if anyone comes by the allergy clinic, you'll see them mushing up fresh foods to do this, and that's why. Um, children less than a year of age may have IgE-mated food allergy in the absence of skin tests. So the, the um, gold standard for um, diagnosing food allergy or seeing if kids have grown out of a food allergy um, is a placebo-controlled uh, food challenge. And this is considered the gold standard, uh, far and beyond any of the other things we've talked about. Um, the selection of foods is based on history and or diagnostic tests. And um, a positive skin test to a food in which a pa patient um, reported an anaphylactic reaction can be considered diagnostic on itself, and you don't have to do this. So if I ate a peanut, I have a positive IgE to it, and I you know, had respiratory difficulty, please don't do a food challenge in your office. It's not going to go well for you. Um, so it, it, that's clear. This is used with some of the murky ones, where you do have a clear history that every time the child gets soy protein, he gets some diarrhea, but we're really you know, not 100% sure if they're going to grow out of it if they're not, to do a, a placebo-controlled food challenge. And we, we do set these up in the office where we put a little bit on the lip, a little bit on the tongue, back of the tongue, a little bit, and, and build up the amount with, with it closely supervised. And we can do it as well um, with a placebo, and the parents don't know which one we're doing, and we do them on different days. There are kids who have some of the more prolonged reactions, where they, um, they're non-IgE-mediated, and they get sick over the day or two right after eating it. Well, we'll send them home with blinded samples um, of food. And I just completed one to mom was absolutely clearly convinced that it was an egg allergy causing all kinds of behavioral problems. And we actually did this child a favor. We got the, um, we created a placebo controlled food challenge of a little bit of powdered egg that went into some skim milk powder. We blinded ourselves and her and she did long, fairly long trials with um, the school assessing his behavior and all that stuff and showed that in fact there was no food allergy. Now he can eat eggs and he's happy and and mom actually believes me now she'd been harassing the school for a long time about the, um, the eggs and and that causing all his behavior problems so this can be very useful in a multi multiple uh, ways um, a word about elimination diets so these are therapeutic trials where you're pretty sure that a child's allergic to a food um, and you want to take it out of their diet 
You use it for a limited period of time, 10 to 14 days, not a month, not two months, not five months, and you monitor the outcomes closely. Um, adequate education before starting is key to avoiding failure with this for multiple reasons. So I'm going to spend a little time on this slide. Um, adequate education is key to making this work in that most people who think they're taking milk out of a child's diet don't manage to do it. Um, even at the Jaffe Food Institute where they've got nutritionists specially trained to teach people how to take milk out of the diet, 40% um, of parents don't do it right. So you, you haven't got a true trial going on. So spending time with them, having the good, we have handouts we can share with you, spending time with the nutritionist to make sure you get all of the food out. I had a mom on Monday whose child probably is allergic to milk. She's breastfeeding. I said, have you removed all the dairy from your diet? She goes, oh yeah, I don't drink any milk anymore. I'm just sticking with cheese and yogurt. <laughs> and, and, and you sort of, really? Um, but really without proper education, this is a nice mom, she's very well-meaning, she, um, she gets it, but milk to her is milk. He's allergic to milk and doesn't see the relationship between butter, cheese, yogurt, or all those things. And then when you get down to the little tiny ingredients, um, which can make a difference. So if you're going to bother doing this and putting this breastfeeding mother through you know, a funky diet to see if this is causing problems with the kids or if you're trying to do this to a child to see if it's causing the symptoms, you make sure you're, you're doing it correctly and you provide the correct education, not a phone call that says, oh sure, if you want to take milk out of your diet, go ahead, um, because they don't understand what you mean. Um, the other thing is to use it only for a very limited period of time. We don't need to do this for months on end and, and keep calcium out of this kid's diet and have them protein deficient. Um, there's far too many times that um, I have kids come into the office who've been on these diets for years. Um, I had a seven-year-old in a couple of months ago just before we did the Mount Washington conference. And mom said, well, he had all these stomach aches, so when he was three years old, we took milk out of his diet. He seemed to be better for a little bit, but then his stomach aches came back, so then we took soy out of his diet, and he seemed better for a little while, and then his stomach aches came back. So then we took wheat out of his diet, and then we took corn out of his diet. Now he's seven, he has no milk, no soy, no wheat, no corn, and some other food. And he's a little skinny, and I said, and she goes, and his stomach still hurts. It's like, so why are we still doing this? Like 10 to 14 days, take the milk out, it doesn't, and you've done it right, didn't make any difference, start the milk back again. So it's very important not to sort of over the phone, sure, give it a try. It's yes, we'll do it. Here's how you do it. Educate them properly and have them back in two weeks. And if it really didn't make any difference, you're done and it needs to go back in the child's diet. And part of this is how kids get to school with multiple allergies. Um, Elimination diets can be targeted to a specific food where the parent's sure that that's what's caused the problem. Um, a basic elimination diet, which we call the six-food elimination diet, we do this for eosinophilic esophagitis um, and um, other common things, milk, soy, egg, wheat, tree nuts, peanuts, fish, and shellfish. Um, taking all six foods out and then reintroducing one at a time. Um, or the severe elimination diet, which is the equivalent of Neocate um, or Elicare. So managing the patient with food allergy. So non-pharmacologic management is really very important. Strict avoidance of the offending food allergens is really the only proven therapy. There's no magic pills out there. Um, pharmacologic therapy um, really doesn't work for this. Um, 
symptomatic reactivity to the food allergens is often lost over time except for those four foods, and those are the ones to remember. Um, epinephrine is the treatment of choice for severe reactions to food. These kids need to have an EpiPen, they need to, parents need to be trained, caregivers need to be trained, and they need to have it with them. And most of the time where there have been fatalities from um, food-induced anaphylaxis, it's because the EpiPen wasn't anywhere that anyone could find it. Um, or people hadn't been trained or people didn't recognize the reaction. Um, the doses can be repeated every 15 minutes for up to three doses. Um, there can be delayed biphasic or prolonged anaphylaxis, um, so observation is very important. Um, prophylactic management has not been proven safe or effective, so giving the child Claritin or Benadryl or something before they go to the birthday party that you're worried about might have peanuts at it is not helpful. Um, when we go back here and we say strict avoidance of offending food allergens is the only proven therapy, how many people think that a school or a workplace where someone has a peanut allergy should be peanut free? One? Good. Right answer. Um, in fact, educating the person who has the food allergy and the people around them is important. But um, trying to create peanut-free zones or milk-free zones, um, other than in like a daycare environment where kids themselves can't be educated, <laughs> they just don't get it, um, actually might cause more problems than it helps because people feel safer than they should. Um, they may not take care with their EpiPen because now I'm in my safe bubble area where there is no peanuts, so I'm okay. And so I can leave my EpiPen in my locker because school is safe. Um, and, and it's not because someone will bring some peanuts in and, they're, and it, it's going to happen. And so, in fact, it, it cre creates a false sense of security and almost impossible to do. Um, so the strict avoidance is the person doing it. Um, you can have a peanut-free table, certainly, in a lunchroom, and you can wipe it down afterwards, but making the entire cafeteria uh, peanut-free isn't going to help and, in fact, may cause more of a problem because you think it's safe and then somebody brings a peanut butter sandwich. So patient education the, um, is very important. So allergen identification, how to read the food labels, um, avoidance strategies and counseling, um, recognizing symptoms, teaching the caregivers of these kids to recognize the symptoms, um, cautions regarding possibilities of life-threatening reactions, um, and then what to do in case of an accidental ingestion. And this is a treatment plan. Like an asthma action plan, these kids should have an action plan with their EpiPen for the school. And they should be taught how to self-administer the epinephrine as soon as they're able but whoever's caring for them should be taught how to administer the epinephrine and they should have an action plan. But there should only be a couple of these kids in every school, not 30 or 40 of them. And that's it. Food allergies and food intolerance. So I, I try to leave that whole avenue of stuff to the allergists. Um, there's a lot of work going on um, with desensitization to peanut allergies, and it's really 
I mean, there's exciting work going on with that, and there's similar work going on with celiac disease and things right now. Getting people to the point where they won't have a life-threatening reaction to it, not to the point that they'll eat a peanut butter sandwich, but to the point where if they get a peanut or they're exposed to it, or let's say you have celiac disease and you go out and you eat something contaminated with gluten, you're going to be fine. Um, but they haven't, they haven't shown promise in being able to get to the point where you're desensitized enough that you can actually eat a peanut butter sandwich. It's much like even the allergy shots you get if you're um, allergic to grass. Um, you know, it means that when you walk out the door in the morning, you're not like nose draining, I can't see, um, wheezing. But if you sat in the grass, you know, once you've had your allergy shots, if you sit in the grass and you rub your face in it, you're still going to have an issue. Um, so I think a lot of the food desensitization is working that way too. Does it does it make sense to have um, the school nurse have a an EpiPen or do they outdate too quickly? I'm just wondering if the kid doesn't have theirs, is it good to have a school one? I, it certainly wouldn't hurt. Have, I mean, having EpiPens available has really been shown to be the best. Um, line of defense. And so if, if my child had a, an allergy like that, I would want the child to have it, but did he leave his backpack somewhere? Did he not have it? So I would give a second one to the school nurse or the teacher to, to have their, um, so that they recognize something's going on, it could be taken care of. So having a few around is not a bad idea. And if they, we just have to replace them. They're not that expensive. I was wondering if you could comment about gluten um, sensitivity a little more. I feel like I have so many friends who like yeah. go to dinner parties and no one can eat gluten anymore, yes. and none of their kids can eat I'm gluten. Ha anymore. I'm happy to talk about gluten sensitivity. So I could do an entire talk on gluten sensitivity. Okay, so again, this gets to that celiac disease, and let's not confuse gluten sensitivity with celiac disease. Celiac disease is the real deal. It has to be treated for life. If you don't treat it, people, adults end up with seizures, with vitamin deficiencies, with lymphoma. It's not a good thing to have. So those people are different than gluten sensitivity. So there are people who feel that when they ingest gluten, they don't feel well. Um, and that's probably very real. Um, there are lots and lots of people who go on a low gluten or gluten-free diet and feel better. And that's probably very real. Um, most people feel better on a gluten-free diet because they're no longer eating processed foods. <laughs> so if you eat a, a diet that doesn't include pasta and, and all these foods, you probably will feel better. I'd probably feel better on a gluten-free diet. So that's part of what you're experiencing. What we're now recognizing, and in the talk that I'm going to do next, um, next month is about stomach aches, is that the gluten sensitivity probably has more to do with it being a FODMAP. Have people heard of FODMAPs, fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. So these are sugars in your diet um, that are poorly absorbed, get to your colon, and are fermented by colonic bacteria, produce gas and bloating and, and diarrhea or something, and you don't feel good. Um, and gluten is a FODMAP. So taking the gluten out of your diet is reducing one of the biggest sources of FODMAPs. Um, lactose is a FODMAP. Um, there's certain, certain fruits and vegetables have more FODMAPs than others. So those people feel better on a low FODMAP diet. And one of the things with introducing the concept of FODMAP is you don't have to eliminate all of the foods. You have to recognize what the foods are um, and not have a meal of just FODMAPs. 
and you'll feel better. So that's probably where we're going with this whole gluten sensitivity issue is that it's, it's a FODMAP. There are people who don't tolerate it very well. Um, and they do, they do do better on those diets, but they don't have celiac disease. They're not allergic to the food. It's not life-threatening if they get it. They just have a stomach ache, and that's okay. Like I get a stomach ache, you know, you get a stomach ache. There is a 30, 40% placebo response in anything you do with irritable bowel, so I'll just throw that out. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it is, it's true. Well, there's a, we have, what, a 30% response to any medication that we take. Yeah. Um, people get busy and concentrate on doing that, and they feel better. Um, but with the FODMAPs, there is, there is some science behind this, and actually the response rate can be 60 to 70. So it does seem to work. Way in the back. Yep. I think another reason why what you're talking about is so important is when you think about the lives of some of the breastfeeding moms who are at the point where they're eliminating foods from their diet, the, the, the adjustment to motherhood and lack of sleep, et cetera, all of it really points to a woman who is under a lot of stress or pressure, maybe feeling really guilty, and then for, based on bad information is drastically compromising her own nutrition. Yes. And I wonder if you have more um, guidance about how to help families going through that when they've gotten that information. and. And that's causing a problem for them. I mean, the, with the breastfeeding moms, the, the only one I ever do is the milk elimination. Um, is the, sorry, no. the only one I ever do is milk elimination. I never take other foods out. Um, very few other antigens actually cross um, into breast milk other than milk. Milk is the only one I do. We're very careful with trying to educate people so that if they get it out, they get it all out, and it's only for a week. Um, and if it doesn't work in a week, we are done you know, it's over and, and we move back. And, and I, I do feel bad. I see moms come in and I think the baby's cranky because he's not getting enough to eat because the mom's not eating anything at this point. So. Yeah. Yeah, we have a moderate number of kids that have celiac along with their diabetes and yeah. um, uh, biopsy positive. And I run into frequently that, well, you know, every once in a while it sneaks into the diet. What's your advice about approaching those families and whether or not it's helpful to do a TTG in a follow-up? So we do follow TTG. You should, in most kids who are diagnosed with celiac disease who have a high TTG, if you've got it out of the diet effectively, the TTG should drop to normal. And if you follow TTG over time, you can tell who's cheating um, by the, the TTG being elevated. Um, if the TTG is elevated, it means there's ongoing um, you know, autoimmune response and they could have damage to their gut, which can cause problems in the long term. The bigger thing I worry about with the diabetics is that if you have damage to your gut, it can, it's not like the whole, necessarily the whole gut, it can be spotty, and you can get real variation in how you absorb food in different areas of your gut, throwing your blood sugars everywhere. So the one time you eat a meal, you need three units, and the next time you eat it, you need seven units, because it happened to hit an air of your bowel that absorbed it all. So the kids with diabetes really have huge blood sugar um, management problems if they're not treating their celiac disease effectively because of the variation in how they'll absorb a specified load of carbohydrate. Um, so we follow TTGs to try and try to educate them on how important this is, um, A, from the point of view of celiac disease and the long-term implications of not treating it, um, untreated celiac disease is the number one cause of unexplained seizures in adults. Um, so I actually diagnosed a parent seizures. 
unexplained seizures in adults. Um, I want to know if Mitt Romney has celiac disease, because he had some seizure on his deck. It was the first thing I thought about. But I've diagnosed a couple of parents um, with celiac disease who had unexplained seizures. How often do you check the TCG annually? I do it with their annual labs. Yeah. You can cheat a little and have a normal TCG. Yeah, and then, but, and that's okay. But if they, they're probably cheating more than you think. If they're admitting to cheating, oh yeah, then <laughs> you're done. And that's where we're hoping for these kids that the medication comes into play that blocks enough of it that if you eat out or you do things, you go to your friend's house, you're going to be okay. I want to just say that I don't think everybody's cheating who has a, a TTG. You could easily be making a mistake by eating something that is contaminated. Yeah. You know, oh, I absolutely. Know. So, yeah, right. so, so it's actually oh, yeah, yeah. to get a TTG yeah. that is. Yeah, they're not cheating, but it can help someone who's not feeling well to do the TTG, <laughs> and, and they know they're not cheating. And I'm going, okay, well, let's look at everything you're doing again. Let's look at your soap. Let's look at your shampoo. Let's look at your lotions. Let's look at where you're eating. I mean, they're not necessarily doing it on purpose, absolutely. That's but the TTG helps to sort of say, well, where do we look? There's clearly something there that we're missing. But it's really satisfying to get a look at the TTG because it's like all your efforts have been It's like, yeah, I did it. Kind of. No, there was a. Allison's been waiting in there. Allison's been waiting in there. This is in the, the, the human milk realm. I never quite gotten it quite through my head how the mothers can eat dairy, get it all the way through their digestive tract, and still have antigenic enough protein at the levels that they can have contained in their own milk that affects the baby. Now, I know it must be true, because I know the elimination works, but I can never make that whole process go through my head. They really still have antigenic protein. Yeah, well, because it's, it's, it's it, the, with the milk allergy, it's um, you're reacting to a portion of the protein. So okay. even the broken down okay. protein is actually antigenic. And that's what's different between that and most other food allergies. Mm -hmm. So even the little chopped up pieces, you're allergic to a little end of it that does get through. Yeah. Uh, peanut allergies. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. When I was growing up and when I was a young boy doctor, I don't remember hearing about peanut allergies. So can I see some of the gray heads shaking? So, did we just miss it, or did it not exist, or did we misidentify it, called something else, and the kids were getting sick, we, we so, called them something else? Well, I would say two things. There, there's two, two players here. Um, one, most of the kids that you hear about who have peanut allergies don't have peanut allergies. They have a peanut intolerance. And so we have to be better at this. Um, and that was part of what I was trying to get at here. Um, the second thing is that we're seeing more food allergy. Um, and that has to do with anyone who's listened to Juliet's work in the microbiome. Um, probably has a lot to do with it. We are super clean. Everybody's sanitizing everything. Um, we're using a lot of antibiotics, which we didn't have available to us many moons ago. Um, and so the microbiome's changing, and we're probably seeing an increased incidence of food allergy in general because of the um, disruption to the microbiome. So we are seeing more, but we're also overcalling more. And, and it's really important that we do identify those kids who have life-threatening reactions and not, and not be, have EpiPens on every child who thinks that peanuts bother them. And also educating people this whole peanut allergy that you know if if someone up there is eating a peanut butter sandwich and opens it and I'm peanut allergic I'm going to be fine. In fact, <laughs> if I go over there and I breathe the air around you, I'm probably going to be fine too. 
um, and that that's OK. And actually, if I touch your peanut butter sandwich, I'm probably going to be fine also, <laughs> as long as I don't put it in my mouth. And hand sanitizer kills it. Jim, so, so yeah. this is a follow-up question on, on, the, on, on the severe allergies that aren't supposed to go away. Yeah. I just wonder how much of that is um, that they don't go away, how much of it is our reluctance to re-challenge somebody that's had an anaphylactic reaction well, well that, so that's where the importance of following the Ig levels goes. So if you have a, an anaphylactic reaction and your Ig level, let's pick a number of 100, and then I retest your, do your RAS testing again in a year, and it's 90, maybe I'm not going to want to re-challenge you. But if it becomes 50, and then 20, and then 10, then doing a food a challenge in the, in the office supervised may be very reasonable. But you have to keep going. You have to follow it. So is that a common thing for people to kind of engage in that process, where they kind of have their allergy followed with grass testing? We try to. The I allergists try to. tell me they have a severe allergy, haven't been to an allergist in years, they just don't eat this stuff. Right, which would be probably a good idea to suggest <laughs> to them, you know, why don't you see an allergist? Most people grow out of this. Maybe you could be retested and have a challenge in the office and liberate yourself <laughs> able to do this. Did Buffy have a question? Well, I, this is more a statement than, um, than a question, but it just occurs to me that, um, I don't know, I want to point out that importance of the history yeah. that you're talking about in doing this, because I, one of the things I struggle with in our current healthcare system, which is a major flaw, is that we're so fragmented so that if you have someone presenting with abdominal pain or with those symptoms, you know, the limited time that you have with them or that you focus in on specifically that, when they actually might have joint pain and asthma and rashes, you know, but to them, the most distressing thing is that. So they have all this time where they are followed yeah. because of the abdominal pain or they get sent to the GI doctor for that and then they get sent to the pulmonologist for that. In a, um, it's just unfortunate the system we work in because I don't think there's a lot of time where we step back and say, wait a minute, they have joint pain and they have asthma and they have the rash and they have the GI stuff and maybe they have something totally different going on. And yeah. I think some of that like yep. patient frustration and parent frustration and grasping at straws comes from there's really Absolutely. much bigger going on, but we have a system that really it, it's interesting. I had um, my first year medical student yesterday afternoon, and she had to do her supervised, um, she's not watching, so I can say, um, had to do her supervised history and physical for the end of the year. And the, she went far too fast, because she was told that when they do their supervised OSCE, you have to finish the history in 15 minutes. And she didn't do a review of systems. That was the thing she dropped off. And so if she'd taken a little longer, and she'd done a review of systems, and we had a complicated patient for her, she would have picked up, like you said, all those other things. And this pressure to see patients quickly, the one thing that drops off is that review of systems. Are my presenting complaints abdominal pain? I'm only going to talk about abdominal pain. And I'm not going to find out about the joint pain and the this and the that because I didn't do the review of systems and because I didn't have the time. And it was fascinating to see this first year student who's been trained right here drop a review of systems completely, even though she had her cheat sheet with her, because she felt like she had to get done in time. And I said, I, I don't care if you take longer. This, it takes longer to do this. So that's a hot. Uh, you have to come down. We're at 9 o'clock. Great hot topic. Thanks, man, for presenting this.